Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Sebastian Kaplan, I'm a, and I'm in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and I am joined, as always, by my good friend, Glenn Hines from Derry, Northern Ireland. Hello, Glenn. Hey, Seb. How you doing, man? Doing pretty well. It's, uh, it's an early Sunday morning here on my end, but um, you know, happy to, to be joined by you, of course, and, and, and our guest, who we'll introduce shortly. Fantastic. Uh, Glenn, why don't you start us off as usual with the uh, social media connections yep. and ways people yep. can contact us. Yep. So we're currently sitting on just over 160 Twitter followers at our handle at Change Talking. Please feel free to come and join us. This is a platform where you have a chance to just reflect on anything that is motivational interviewing or anything that we've talked about in the conversations we've had with our guests. So at Change Talking uh, for Twitter. On Facebook, it's Talking to Change. And then for direct contact with myself or Seb, emails, it's podcast at glennhines.com. Excellent. Thank you for that. All right. So we are going to get started uh, and I will introduce our, our guest. Our guest is Frederick Eliason. He's a social worker with more than 20 years experience, mainly with organizational development and as a manager. Today, he divides his time between being a self-employed consultant specializing in leadership and organizational development, MI training, and being a project manager at the Research and Development Department at the National Board of Institutional Care. Uh, this is a, a, an agency also known as SIS, which is a Swedish government agency that delivers individually tailored compulsory care for young people with psychosocial problems and for adults with substance abuse. Overall, Frederick is responsible for the MI training and supervision of more than 4,000 SIS employees, and he is head of a unit of MI trainers and Mint members. Frederick, it is very good to have you joining us. We are uh, happy to talk with you today. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to um, be on your podcast as well. So maybe you can get us started, as uh, some of our recent guests uh, have done as well. Just uh, tell us a little bit about your early MI story, just how MI came to came into your life, and 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 we'll, we'll take it from there. All right, thanks. So this is um, late 1990s, early 2000. I was just out of university uh, with a, a degree in social work, and I had my first um, job uh, as um, uh, a low-level manager uh, at a Swedish prison, and I was employed to implement evidence-based practice at that prison. And one of the things that was decided was going to be implemented was motivation interviewing, and I've never heard of it at that point. Um, I was sent off to a um, three-day uh, introductory training, and trying to implement that at, the, um, at this prison that I was um, employed at. Um, so that, I, I, I think my first like, um, taste of, of, of MI was more as an administrator than a, as a practitioner, even though I sort of tried to, to work with some of the skills, it was really hard and I didn't have very much um, supervision or coaching myself. So I remember in the early early days that it was quite a struggle to 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 learn, and the environment that I was practicing is was was highly um, sort of confrontational. Uh, that was the culture that was um, that was at the prison. A um, couple of years later, uh, I started working uh, as a practitioner, as a probation officer. I was doing. Um, uh, CBT treatment, so that's uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, and 
I went to my second introductory training of MI. And that, that's sort of when things started to fall in place for me. It was really helpful to do the, the course twice. Um, and I was lucky at my workplace at the moment because I had a very talented um, colleague uh, who was a supervisor in, in, um, in MI, was called Eric Kniefstrom. And we spent a lot of time together. I, I had the opportunity to meet with him on a weekly basis and he listened to my conversations or we taped my, my um, filled my conversations. And that was very, very helpful uh, for learning motivational interviewing. So that's sort of where I started. It sounds like it was, it, it was something that came along. I, 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 in some ways, it sounds like it was given to you and told, get on with doing this. It didn't, it wasn't something that uh, you weren't looking for. But when you introduced it a second time, and again, I imagine it'll be very encouraging for some people listening to this, that here we are now talking to an MA practitioner after 20 years. And, and, and his initial uh, introduction to it was something that he had to go back to it a couple of times before it began to have any real influence for him. And uh, so, again, it's that encouragement. It's, it, if it's not working the first time, it doesn't mean it's not going to work. So what was it that you, when you mentioned there the support of your colleague, but also going to the second workshop, so what was it that you started to experience or hear at that point that led you to want to do more of it then, Frederick? Mm. I think with, with motivational interviewing, I got a stronger sense uh, of how I could do the things that I wanted to do. Because during my social work training, and there was a big emphasis on, on relationship building with clients. That was like um, the most important, and that was more important than the specific method you were using. It was all down to being able to create that sort of trusting bond to the people that you were working with. And, and that, was, that was truly emphasized during the whole of my training. But no one ever sort of got down to how do you do that? What should I, or how should I train to become good at that? Mm. And how, how do I do it with some very challenging people that, that might not want to be there or they're forced to meet me and, and there's a lot of hostility in the room? Uh, how is it possible for me to be good at relationship building in really, really difficult situations? Nobody told me that. Mm -hmm. and, I think with, and I think with MI, you've got something to hold on to that describes how you might do that. What skills should I practice to, to be better at that? And what really stood out was that if you make people feel understood by you, that you get it, mm. that you sort of are able, then walking away from a meeting with you, man, he got it. He, he understood what it's about. He understood the struggles I'm in. That is so relationship building. Mm. That's so trust building if you're able to communicate that. And, and MI is very helpful in describing how you might do that. So I think that's what really sort of drawn me, drawn me in. And it was a lot about also the, the spirit of motivation interviewing was very sort of aligned with, with my own values today and, and at the time as well. And I think the first course that I did, there was uh, much more emphasis on different skills, but not so much on the spirit. And the second training I did was much more emphasis on, on spirit and the, and the skills were there for you to practice that attitude, which we call the MI spirit. And that made a huge difference for me. Hmm. I, I feel like we could go in a, a few directions even already. I, just what, what you said just then, that, that interesting comments about if you start with the skills it, it, it might be a struggle to to build some momentum or to even apply things which might seem a bit counterintuitive because it's learning about what you actually do and you can just get on with it right but um but actually i'm, I'm i was struck hearing you talk about and reflect on those early experiences and and it seemed like 
at a very early stage in your MI learning and in your career, you are you were already wrestling with the how do you teach MI or how you know that not so much the client practitioner dynamic, but maybe that more meta dynamic of of how a trainer might infuse that into a clinical uh, conversation. Um, was that was that accurate? Oh, indeed. Yeah, yeah, indeed it was. And maybe it was because of the two trainers that I met. They had very sort of different styles and and different styles may suit different people. But for me, the style of my second trainer, uh, where there was this sort of emphasis in the beginning of the the spirit MMI, it, it sort of made it feel less of something that you did to people. And um, I remember feeling a bit frustrated in the beginning when it was all skills, that it felt a bit manipulative. Mm. So, so yeah, I think quite sort of from the beginning, it, it struck me that the same sort of method or approach could come through quite different depending on, on, on who was talking about it. Mm. So it sounds like you really appreciated the opportunity to reflect on your own attitude, and mm. The, mm. oh, indeed, the way you were doing what you were doing, and once yeah. you once you had a grasp of that, and and once you connected to the the attitude spirit of motivation interviewing, and it resonated with your own values, then the skills began to make more sense for you. Exactly. And, right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly, and I and I also think that sort of what came out of that was that. I tried to implement it at the at the prison. Uh, I thought of this as just another method. So you have this method, and you have that program, or you could do this, and then you have MI, and and you need to make some sort of infrastructure for the inmates to be able to get this these conversations. And but from the second training, it was so much clear that this was more of a way of being, mm. it, not a hat you put on. So now I'm going to have an MI conversation with this client and then I'm just going to be as I used to be. And then for someone else, I put on the hat again. It was more of a way of being. And that was so interesting when when we did. We had a small group of colleagues that were practicing or training MI together. And sometimes we had uh, Eric with us and sometimes we didn't. And I remember once we talked about, could you use MI when you sort of answer the phone? And some of us said, Yes, of, of course you will. Hmm. And some was, no, 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 no. I only do MI sort of when it's called for or when I make a conscious decisions that now is a good time for this approach. So, so and that was sort of quite early, that sort of distinction is, is, is MI more of a way of being, a way of doing the work that I do? Hmm. Or is it something extra I put on in certain situations where I feel that it is needed? And for me, it was sort of quite clear uh, at that time that this was more of a way of, of being, a way of doing the work that I'm supposed to do, and this is the way that I do it. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it's like the, the MI becomes the language that you speak, mm-hmm. and and then there may be certain conversations that sound a bit different or a bit focused, for instance, when someone is ambivalent about change, which of course is what yeah. MI is all about. But, yeah. but a, a conversation could sound similar to, um, or, or could have, you, you can sort of hear and feel the MI spirit in any kind of conversation. Exactly. Uh, even if it isn't about someone's ambivalence. Precisely. And, and I think maybe we will talk a little bit more about that when we begin to talk about sort of MI in a, in a leadership context. But when we speak about MI, and we sometimes say, well, it's MI all the time, and some say, oh, no, it can't be, it's for specific situations. Maybe we sometimes mean different things when we talk about MI. Yeah. So, so if we mean the engaging part where you're interested in the other person's perspective and, and you value their autonomy and you try to do all of, of that, that might not be a hat that you put on and take off. Mm. But the focusing part and the, and the cultivating change talk part, 
Well, that, of course, comes into play not all the time. Right. It comes into play in certain situations where there is a, um, a goal that you're sort of working towards. But because before that, you don't have change talk or sustain talk. It's just talk. Mm. It's just when you have the focus that, that you have mm. the other processes that we talk about in MI. So it's almost like the engaging aspect that, that uh, of the full process of motivation is, is a universal opportunity for us to have relationships mm. with, with everybody we meet and that, yeah. that we're interested in other people because we're interested in other people. Uh, exactly. Where the divergence takes place is what's my, what's my role in this relationship? Is it a friendship? Is it a bit of support? Or is it I have a particular role where I've been engaged in, in this conversation with the purpose of helping you think differently? And depending on what role I play in this relationship will influence which road I go next. But whatever happens, we're all going to start in this engagement process of who are you? And it's great to meet you. Yeah, and as exactly. a consequence that you're going to be able to use your reflective list and you're going to be able to use your affirmations because they're genuine. You do want to hear this person and you do. You are interested in who this person is from that uh, strength based perspective. Hmm. Precisely. Right. And I think I think. One of the beautiful things, I might have heard it on your podcast, or it might have been a different podcast, but it was with one of the founders, um, Steve Rolnick, mm -hmm. who was asked to give a very short description of what MI is. It might have been a different podcast. Anyway, what he said was, it's a combination of attitude and skills. Mm. And, and if we call it spirit, or we call it a certain attitude towards other people, it's still, it's that attitude is is not something that you take on or take off yeah and and that sort of made sense as well because I, at a point in, in my sort of career i did a lot of, of supervision on um, wards for young people that were mandated to care so i locked myself in in the ward and i and i listened to real conversation between the the, the young people and the staff and then i tried to sort of supervise the, the staff to, to be more MI in their daily work. And one of the youth, I remember him so well, was a 17-year-old boy who was curious about who, who I was. And he asked me, you know, who are you and why are you here? And I said, well, you know, I, I work at the head office. I help the staff with with um, some supervision. And I, and I work with this specific method of motivational interviewing. You ever heard of it? Yeah, 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 he said, I've, I've heard of it. You know, I have. Uh, MI conversation once a week. I think it's Wednesday at two. I have one of those MI <laughs> conversations. Okay. So uh, what, do, what do you make of it? I asked him. Well, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's the staff um, giving an act. It's, it's more of theater. It's not something that they really, it's not something they really mean. Right. Oops, um, I thought, whoa, I said, that's, that's, of course, quite interesting to hear. How come you think of it that way? Well, you know, I really like my MI conversation at Wednesday at twos because I, I, at those conversations, it seems that I'm doing most of the talking, which surprises me every time because I'm going there thinking, oh, I'm going to talk to the stuff again. I don't really want to. And I end up being the one who talks the most. And... And, and I usually talk about stuff that's really important to me. Like, you know, what I want with my life and how I want things to be when I get out of here and how I think about my education, all of that stuff, which is, you know, it's, it's quite good. But, you know, all the time that I'm not in that conversation, all the time on the ward and all my other contacts with the staff, they're just telling me what to do all the time. And I don't like that. And somehow he, he, by saying that, shows us what happens when we put on the hat and we have the attitude one hour a week. Mm. And all of the other time, because this was 24-hour inpatient ward care, we have a different attitude. And this 17-year-old boy could very nicely describe that mm. right yeah uh, yet another example of uh, a teenager who seems to capture things so beautifully and, and able to mm -hmm. describe what what perhaps many uh, many people experience with it and, and 
interesting how even with someone who was, I would imagine, suspicious of the uh, intentions or the motives of the staff that mm. and go and sounds like going into the conversation in a kind of a guarded way yep. uh, would just find themselves talking about things that they weren't expecting. Um, yep. Actually, I wanted to test out a, a metaphor with you guys as I was listening to all this stuff about hats and, and things that perhaps what we're saying is that the MI spirit is is like our haircuts uh, or in our cases, uh, almost like a, a shaved head. Um, but then we can put on an MI hat of sort on top of that when we're getting into the change talk, you know, eliciting change talk and how we respond to sustained talk and that sort of thing. Mm. Or we might take off that hat and put on a CBT hat or an acceptance and commitment therapy hat, but we still have that MI spirit underneath the hat, which kind of is the foundation of, of wherever else we're, we're taking the conversation. Your head, is, your head is your spirit and you put your hats on top of your, your spirit? Right. I guess the head is a more permanent thing than the haircut. Mm, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Maybe less so well, for us. Again, certainly but... my hair is more permanent. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and perhaps we can, we, can, we, can, we can invite the audience to maybe extend that or to draw that out, you know, um, looking for metaphors to explain this, this, this part of the conversation. You know, what, what's the image that comes up for you as you listen to that idea that there's this constant spirit with a fluctuation of what goes on top of it depending on what, what's going on in the relationship and uh, there's our first invite to our audience to throw in some ideas and what also struck me when you were speaking uh, Frederick was that the young person was asking for something that was similar to what you were asking for in your practice which was you, you said this has to help me do what I want as a practitioner, yes. you were looking for something, you were looking for skills, you were looking for education, you were looking for support that ultimately helped you be, do what you wanted. And the young person was going, you know, this is really interesting because this is, it's surprising because I'm talking about the stuff that matters to me, but ultimately he was comparing the two experiences against his own need, which was help me do what I need to do. And maybe that's something that for us, for us all to consider yeah. is, is, you know, how am I helping this person be, do what they want and do i even know what they want have i have i taken the time to ask them and i think that's what you were describing there in relation to the spirit is that the spirit embeds that genuine curiosity about you know what is it you really want who is it you really mm. want to be as compared to this is who i think you should be and this is and therefore i'm going to do these things to you and i think that's the mm. shift that maybe takes place certainly for me as a practitioner at the early stages and sounds like for yourself as well, which was shifting away from doing to, to being with and accepting yeah. people and ultimately to find out who, what it is they wanted for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's precisely it. So given that development and you've, you've mentioned supervision a couple of times and, and, and the work that you're now doing, perhaps you could introduce us now and how your journey from motivation to viewing took you into the leadership and organizational aspect mm -hmm. of it? So um, my, my first encounter with MI was from an organizational sort of perspective. How do you implement evidence-based practice? How do you change work cultures that are highly confrontational to a work culture that more is in line with the spirit of, of, of MI or person-centered uh, way of being with people? And I think for, for me, uh, it was um, at, at a point, uh, this must be like nine or 10 years ago, I took a new job as a manager for an inpatient ward where we were supposed to give mandated care to people that were suffering from dual diagnosis. And my idea was um, if we could have the spirit of MI as a workplace culture. This is how those that are taking into care with us, this is what they always meet mm. in, in contact with us. That could be a pretty awesome thing, was my thought of thought. So I, I tried to, to, um, to get that job with that description. I, I, I had this idea on how you can sort of try to run this ward with the help of an evidence-based practice that I hope could be like the the, the binding culture for the for the um, sort of workforce or the teams, and what 
what quickly became apparent was that the way that we communicate with each other as a team, the way that I, as the manager, communicate with my employees or coworkers, that will have an effect on the, on the chances that culture, that attitude also will exist between the frontline staff and the patients. That was my sort of discovery. And that, that was quite, at the time, quite challenging for me as a, as a manager, because that meant that I needed to do things a little bit differently in, in the way that I was interacting with my coworkers and, and the management team. And it, was, it, and it became so clear that there were um, a connection between those two things, how we communicate in, in the workforce or in the group or in the teams and, and what comes out on the ward. Uh, right. Again, it, it just seems like another instance of where you're starting from is not that frontline practitioner client conversation, but mm. at, at sort of a, a level, not, not above it from a superiority standpoint, but from a so just a, just at a different level of things, and and at, I would imagine a lot of people, and I'll put myself in that category, would would think to make some kind of change or to enact some new style on a unit like that, mm. you need to start with the programming, changing the interventions, and and it it seems like you were. Or maybe you were doing things in parallel or, or sort of at the same time points, but, but really emphasizing the conversations between colleagues and from manager to practitioner as opposed to practitioner to client. Uh, well, you know, I, I started, uh, as I understood you, sort of at the same point as you described. Uh, I thought, let's, let's give them some proper training in motivational interviewing. Let's get some good supervision and let's let them talk a lot about how we can be in the spirit of MI, not just when we have one-on-one -on -one conversations, but how we interact on, on a day-to-day -day basis in the world. That was my initial sort of idea and it didn't work. Um, that's when I sort of started thinking around why why isn't this working? Um, why is it so hard? And I started to reading uh, a bit about implementation. And, and, and what I also got as, as feedback from, from my employees was that they wished for me to be with them mm. as they saw me be with, with patients. Mm. So when I was with patients, I was in my MI spirit. And, and I had a lot of practice, so that wasn't too hard. But when I when I was sort of the manager, it's it's like it was so much harder for me to be in the spirit of MI because I had all of these responsibilities and and why don't people just get it? <laughs> right. Uh, so it took it took quite a lot of of sort of looking into oneself and, and challenging the the sort of current way that I was leading this this work. Hmm. You know, throughout your own willingness to reflect on yourself and the impact of yourself on other people is very evident. And uh, it's like the, you being aware of the, the organization as almost like a corporate parent, that here we are hmm. looking after these clients. And the, what you began to explore is if we start parenting people like this, da, 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 these are the outcomes. So you took a step back and began to think about what type of parent am I? And what type of parent mm -hmm. do I need to be? And that was about the relationship within the team that you had yeah. with the team. And that almost like the way we talk to each other in the team is the culture in which we ult ultimately then start to talk to other people outside of the team, which yeah. teaches them how to talk to other people. So by, by being mm -hmm. caring and compassionate and nurturing to each other, we've created a safe place for us to be us. And, ev and everybody who comes into that space has an opportunity to be safe to be themselves. And ideally what happens is they can then take that culture away and start to bring that into the relationships they have with other people. So the people who can be with them feel safe and supported by them because. Mm. And it was sort of much, much later that I stumbled upon 
like there's some science behind this. Uh, there's a lot of research, research being done about how you change like workplace cultures and what seems to be the most important factors for teams to thrive. And, and that made me want to pursue this road a little bit further. How could MI be helpful for, for leaders? Well, maybe that takes us naturally to your work. Now, you and your colleagues uh, are developing its own subset, I suppose, of, of MI. Well, the, the acronym is MILO, but maybe you could talk a little bit about what, what MILO is and who's doing that work and where you're at with that. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think uh, it's important to say that the, the sort of MILO concept is just uh, the, the four of us who are doing, and, and we just want to have some, some sort of name for it. But I know there's a book that's called MI Lead that a few colleagues has published through Amazon. And, and then there's a whole bunch of, of really uh, interesting uh, work being done uh, that's not just on the on the Milo. So that's um, I, just something that I want to say in the, in the beginning. But um, the driving force to, to, to pull this together was uh, Pernilikov Eriksson, who's um, a Danish member of, of Mint, uh, who quite early started thinking and conceptualizing MI in, in leadership. And we met at one of, the, one of the forums, and I was sort of in the midst of my exploration around what type of leader I wanted to, um, to be. And so that's, that's sort of the starting point for our collaboration. So it sounds like the L in Milo stands for leadership. Yeah, sorry. Am, am, I, am I in leadership and organizations? Sorry, that's, that's the Milo. Am I in leadership and organizations? So it sounds like it was very reassuring for you to discover that it wasn't just you thinking about this. There was this research going on about how do, how do organizations be healthy and, and supportive. Yeah. But more, even more interesting was within the motivational interview network of trainers, you met other people even in your own region who were thinking in that way. And it seems like there was a, an opportunity for a conversation to get started about, well, what and if do we do with this? Um, exactly. So there's, there's four of you thinking about it and there's four of you working on it. So what sort of things are you discovering and what sort of things are you uh, practicing? Yeah, so what we're trying to do is um, build some sort of um, hub for people that are interesting in, in MI and leadership and organization and to be a group that tries to bring up some sort of community together for, for, for folks who, who think this is this is interesting. So what we did was that we built this website where we try to gather material resources around MI and leadership, um, sort of just as a way of, of trying to, to spread this kind of, of, um, of thinking. And it's me, it's Pernilikov Eriksson in, in Denmark, it's Greg Suntner in Texas, US, and it's Gillian Gonzalez in New Mexico. And we're like, the four of us are sort of trying to facilitate, I guess, a place for people to find resources around MI leadership. Great. And we'll get that website to the episode uh, webpage as well so people can access mm -hmm. that. Great, uh, thanks. Okay, so the the four of you, so you're, you've developed this hub, you're trying to attract and invite people with similar interests to start sharing mm. ideas and start developing mm. a sense of, you know, what does MI look like in, in a leadership yeah. and organizational context? Uh, yeah. What are some key things if people were to ask you, you know, gosh, am I in leadership? Why even do that? Or what? What's, mm -hmm. how is that a thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that there's a, a like a movement for uh, leadership and leadership development that, that comes under, well, quite some different names. Some call it transformational leadership. Some call it humble leadership or servant leadership. Uh, because what research seems to tell us is that the sort of traditional authorian leadership uh, doesn't work as well as a different kind of leadership, which is sometimes described as more 
sort of servant or transformational type of, of, of leadership. And there's quite a, quite a bit of research on that. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing is that we have something called psychological safety, which is a shared belief that the team is safe for interpersonal risk-taking. And it seems that in teams and organizations that have psychological safety, they thrive. And, and some research show that this is one of the key factors for organizations and teams to, to thrive. So in some ways, it sounds like First of all, if you think of leadership or organizations from a paramedical perspective, what you're saying is the pyramid's turned upside down, that mm. the leader serves all of those above them in the pyramid. Yep. And that's the role, and yep. that's their responsibilities of taking on that yep. role, and that's what the rewards come for from taking on. And that's that <laughs> in itself influences the experience of people's interpersonal risk-taking or psychological safety, that that the leader creates the environment to be safe, to be vulnerable, to be safe, to not know mm. for, for safe to experiment um, yeah. and, that, and to make mistakes and for, for each mm. and every one to learn that, uh, mm. that it's okay for me to be me and, and for us to come together almost like in a hive and work together and, and create a safe place for everybody. Precisely. And, and, and the psychological safety is, is precisely that, that you feel okay to take risks to say, hey, hey uh, I don't really get sort of what, where, where's this project going? Hmm. And that's a risk hmm. because someone can say, well, didn't you get the memo? <laughs> or haven't you sort of read the files? Or everybody else seems to get it and you don't. So it seems like in a lot of workplaces that are not psychological safe, you don't really bring your full self and your full engagement hmm. to work. So it sounds like the manager in that instance doesn't take the practitioner or colleagues or workmates uh, uncertainty personally or mm. as a threat that they continue mm. to see it from the other person's perspective. And it sounds like that's part of what you were describing at the beginning, which was that going back to that attitude of what if this wasn't about me? What if this, this mm. challenge, what if, uh, what if I continue to try to understand it from the other person's perspective? Why does this not make sense to them without saying, well, the reason why it's not working is there's something wrong with you. Exactly, exactly. So if organizations and leaders uh, are, are trying to create psychological safe workplaces and wanting to have a humble approach to leadership, they might, at the same way as um, social worker practitioner, uh, practitioner, need help with the how. How do I do that? What skills should I be good at? When someone comes and says, wow, there's nothing working on this world. Why aren't you taking your responsibility as a leader? This is terrible. It's very easy as the leader to go into defending yourself. And then you have just a big argument. So in that moment to think that, okay, now I need to put my listening skills into practice because there might be something here that I'm missing and there may, might be something here that this person brings to me that, that is really important for the, the organization that I'm responsible for. But it's hard because when you're accused, you tend not to listen, you tend to defend yourself. So I think what, what Emma have is some pieces of a puzzle that helps leader grow and become leaders that are able to create like safe spaces and psychological safety at workplaces. Uh, and, and I think that what we can contribute with is a lot about the, the, um, the, the skills. Um, but again, the skills without the attitude doesn't do it. Right. So MI would, would one of the things that it would bring to the table for a leader is more effective listening skills and, and all of the benefits that people feeling heard from their leaders would, would bring to bear for the organization. I, I wonder what you would say, Frederick, to someone who says, you know, is that really what leadership is about? You know, organizations need people to make tough decisions. They need to, the, you know, the, the, the final answer needs to rest with that leader or manager person, whoever that is. And, you know, hey, if people don't like the answers, they don't have to work there. But 
we, what we really need is that strong person, the strong voice to say yes or no and to keep people in line. And, and that's really where organizations thrive, right? So what would you say to that? I would say that research tells us otherwise. Um, and that what a, a successful leader seems to be able to do is to balance advocating his or her own view with listening and inquiring other people's views. So a leader who, who do that seems to, to be more appreciated by the workforce and seems to have better results. So I think you need both to have a leader who sort of puts the direction, but you also need a leader who is able to make the um, persons that work for, for him or her um, be able to bring their whole self to work and, and feel engaged uh, to the workplace and to the work that they're doing. And, and you need to be able to combine those two. So in some ways, the idea of a leader being a strong person, what repre what's represented by that strength is not necessarily the ability to make everybody afraid of them, but to make everybody feel safe in their company, recognizing how different things are. And yep. so it's, it's, it's the, the practitioner's strengths or emotional, psychological strength as much as anything else to be able to, mm. to be willing to hear things from the, the, the staff's perspective, not just their own or the organization's. And yeah. So, yeah. so you mentioned there that idea of the attitude and, and the, the thought came to me is, how do we teach this attitude? How do, you know, you, you mentioned that it has something that has developed for you and what is it that makes the learning of the spirit or the attitude of motivation to be impossible? Is it, is it through the experience of someone who manifests the spirit with you that eventually it, it's almost like you learn it by osmosis, that you take it into mm -hmm. you through other people in the relationship? Or is there exercises mm -hmm. that you do when you're working with organizations that maybe perhaps the audience could consider thinking for themselves? Mm. Well, I think this is very similar to, to training MI to other practitioners as to train MI with, with leaders. That I think you would like to try to get them to experience what that attitude or spirit feels like and to experience maybe the difference between the hierarchical, uh, I'm the boss here, I'm telling you what to do, how that feels. And the other perspective or the other approach, which would be, so this decision uh, has been made and you feel, you feel both ways about that. Please, please tell me about that. Those two approaches would feel very differently. And I think when you train, train people, uh, you, it's nice to have that experience uh, and then sort of learning the skills uh, is so much easier. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to place the clinical world of MI with the leadership organizational world and wondering if, if there are some things that fit nicely or are clean parallels, or maybe there's some things that just don't quite overlap and that can be okay too. But so for instance, mm. a client, Right. Mm. In a clinical context, there's a client who is struggling, let's say, with their drinking and then a practitioner uses MI with them, not mm. on them, but with them and, and helps them resolve that or, or make changes in their life. Uh, is there a parallel in the leadership and organizational realm that that can fit with that kind of construct? Well, I, I think what you asked me was, is there some similarities between the practitioner who works with a client who maybe drinks too much and try to help them around their, their drinking and, and leadership training. Are there like similarities or, or differences that I think with MI in leadership, you need to think about uh, what part of MI would be most helpful for leaders. And, and I remember Terry Moyers, who is a sort of well-known researcher and trainer in motivational interviewing, asked a question at a, at a workshop I was, uh, when should you not do MI uh, when you're a leader? It's a fair question. And that depends on, on what do you mean by saying MI. So do you mean uh, cultivating change talk to a specific um, a behavioral goal? I think leaders quite rarely do that. 
But if you're talking about the attitude and the engaging part with the overall goal to have psychological safety in work groups and have engaged staff, I think they need to, to have that attitude all the time, even when making tough decisions, even when sort of laying people off or replacing people and all of that like sort of hard, difficult stuff that, that takes place in, in workplaces, to have a leader that, that can listen to that frustration you feel over the decision that you think is wrong and you feel listened to might influence how you feel about the workplace that you, that you are. Mm. And, the, and perhaps even leaving how you feel about the experience of having been laid off and yeah. that, that the impact that that has on your own sense of self or your own anger or your own frustration or mm-hmm. ideally your own motivation to move forward and, and potentially the, the conversation with the person laying you off can itself be a change conversation if done effectively. And it, mm. and, and it sounds like in some ways the question that, that you were exploring there was uh, how do we balance that ethical uh, issue of is it possible for me as a leader with these skills and this knowledge to manipulate people to almost like to try and generate change talk from mm. staff that fits my needs rather than their own? Um, and I wonder what, what thoughts you have and, and what you've explored in relation to that and Milo? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think in, in a leadership context, that question is more important and more at the forefront than a lot of other MI work. Because a lot of MI work is done in context where we have a long tradition of sort of putting the patient or the client in, in the center and it's their needs that we are there for. And with leadership, it's, it's somewhat different. I mean, I'm responsible for the whole organization. I might be responsible for stakeholders. I might be responsible for, for making a profit. So you need to be much, much, much more careful about not trying to use MI in a manipulative way to suit your own needs. And I think that's a big question if you want to train leaders in MI, how much emphasis would you give that training to the evoking change talk, sustain talk part? Or instead, how much would you train to be in equipoise? Mm. And the overall goal is for the employee together with their manager to find a path or find a solution that works for for the individual. Frederick, could you just uh, talk a bit about equipoise? It's a, mm-hmm. a term Thanks. that we may not have covered in the podcast yet. No, excellent. Thank you. So, so as I understand it, equipoise is where you don't have a preferred outcome or a preferred goal with your MI conversation. So for some behavioral changes, it's, it's not a better outcome or a, a worse outcome. And I think of it as a, as a sort of as a scale. And on the one hand, you have behavioral changes that you don't feel an ethical itch to try to influence, sort of heroin use. I, I, I think it's better not to use heroin than to use heroin. So I will try to influence this conversation. On the other hand, I have um, behavioral changes that I think there's not a better behavioral change than the other. It's more about the other person coming to a decision on what they want to do. So uh, marriage counseling, should I stay or should I go? There's not one outcome that is better than the other. At least in, in, in Sweden, there, I usually take the example of someone comes in and thinking about having an abortion. Should I, as a practitioner, try to influence that person to have the abortion or to not have the abortion? Yeah, maybe I shouldn't do either. Right. I should be in equipoise. Right. I should be neutral. But with someone who uses heroin, I'm not neutral. I think it's better not to use heroin than to use heroin. So there's a scale between those two. 
which makes it, as a practitioner, I always have to be mindful, is this uh, a behavior that I think is okay to influence? That's an ethical decision for me to make. Yeah, yeah. And Does that you, make sense? I, I, think it, I think it makes great sense. And, and maybe could you tie it back into the, the mm -hmm. context of leadership and organization, what you were trying to say earlier? Yeah, so as a leader, I must, I must be very aware on where on that scale I am. And as a leader, I probably have more conversations on the equipoise side, the neutral side, than I have where I have a specific outcome that I would prefer. Mm. And I mentioned for a lot of people that that's quite a shift in their way of understanding the role of leaders in organizations. I'm put into a management position because it's my job to steer the staff to a certain place and I'm the expert. I know where you need to be, so brace mm. yourself. I'm going to take you there. Uh, yep. What you're inviting us to do is to recognize that there's lots of different ways of getting to this place. Let's all of us think Precisely. of it. Let's all of us think of it and let it, let's all of us go there together. And what we think that will do is that it will increase psychological safety if you meet a person that sort of talks to you like that and, we, and it will increase your engagement to your work because you think that your opinion matters. Yeah, the, this question or the notion of um, psychological safety seems to be really at the core of what you all are doing with Milo Group mm. and, and maybe that's not that it has to fit cleanly on top of the clinical uh, clinical context, but uh, you know, whereas you know, someone changing their drinking or heroin use, as you were saying, that that mm. is what we're trying to achieve in a clinical context. Yeah. Uh, from a leadership context, what we're trying to uh, achieve with regard to the role of MI is that level of psychological safety within the organization, which will then lead to whatever changes come from there, which I, I imagine maybe there is a similarity, uh, you know, that the, the person who's using heroin and is in a conversation with a substance abuse counselor, I imagine there would need to be a level of psychological safety that that person experiences before they begin to even consider changing their heroin use. So, of, so I, suppose, I suppose the parallels are there. In order to people feel safe and trusting in you, there are certain actions that you can do that will increase that safety and trustworthiness, and there's other actions that you can do that will decrease them. I'm not sure of the right word, it's not a metaphor, it's, it's, it's the, the story of the sun and the moon trying to get the coat off again, mm -hmm. you know, that we can, mm -hmm. as leaders, we can blow really hard or else we can just make it the environment such that that the person feels safe and it sounds like what milo is exploring is how does motivational interviewing help leaders be the sunlight that influences people's attitudes and behaviors within the organization rather than trying to force them into being uh particular precisely hmm. yeah exactly and and that's and, and i think am i leadership and, and and milo is is a part of something bigger in the sort of leadership world there are others out there trying to, to sort of strive for the same outcome, uh, but with other good methods and, and very inspirational methods. Uh, and I think MI has a, has a place um, to, to, to contribute as well. It's making me think of some of the other conversations we've had, like recently with uh, Jeff Brecken in the context of sports and talking about MI with coach or for coaches or, or a yeah. sports coach using motivational interviewing, or even what you were talking about earlier, Frederick, uh, as a probation officer, that mm. I, I could see how the conversations might be similar as well. You know, the, a probation oh. officer will talk with their the their their client, so to speak, and there's some realities mm. to that arrangement. You know, mm. that a judge exactly. has a judge exactly. has said that that person needs to do X, Y, and Z, and you as a probation officer is is someone who's going to help coordinate that, manage that, and report back, and and all of that exactly. is a very hopefully a very transparent process. Mm. And a leader in a business will also have certain expectations of the of the worker. You know, you, you exactly. work from, from this hour to this hour. 
these are the expectations that you have and 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 so there are uh, yeah so I, I guess seeing it and, and how it would relate to other contexts uh, besides you know business organizations yeah yeah so thank you thank you Seb for, for bringing that back to me yeah that's absolutely true uh, I remember sort of a, a specific moment when I when I realized that the attitude or the spirit of MI uh, wasn't just something that I put on once in a while when having MI conversation and and it was I had a new client coming in to visit and, and the first meeting with a new client had a specific sort of route it always took. It was me giving loads of information about this and that and what happens if you don't do that and, and eventually you could be back in prison if you don't comply and, and, and I was talking 80% of the time. And I thought maybe it's possible to do those conversations in an MI manner and how would I go do that? Well, maybe he knows quite a lot about probation already. This might be the eighth time, what do I know? He might have friends who, who's been on probation. So, so instead of giving a lot of information, I use the strategy of giving information um, in, a, in, a, in a conversation. So I asked him, so, well, now you're here, you have a probation, what do you know? And he knew a lot. So I didn't have to give that much information. I could start by giving affirmations and, and say, wow, you really have, you've done your reading and you really want this to work and, and you've put some effort really trying to dig in on, on what's being asked of you now that you have probation. And you would imagine that that conversation had a different vibe to it mm. than my usual conversations. Yeah. Huge eye-opener for me. Right. So instead of trying again in a probation uh, situation where you, it, it could be understood that this person has done wrong, part of my role is to you know, make, make, like, make life difficult for them. And that's the only way mm. they're going to change their attitude. But it sounds like your approach mm. was, you know, by you being different in the way you approach things, that mm. seeing them from a strength-based perspective changed the way they experienced being with you. That shifted the way they thought about their relationship with you and the metaphor that we've talked about a few times and, and it's very familiar for people who are around motivation of the world, the dance that you were doing began to yeah. change. And the conversation yeah. that you were having in that dance was again back to that, how does this help me get what I want from, from the client's perspective? And ultimately, mm -hmm. for, I imagine for most people going to probation, what they want is to get the probation officer out of their life. Now, how Which they, is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. you were inviting yeah. them to explore you know, what do you think needs to happen for me to not have to see you again? And they started mm. to give you the information. And it's back to that idea of I learn who I am as I hear myself speak. It was their own ideas coming up with this, probably the same things you were going to explain to them. They've explained it to you. Mm. More importantly, they've explained it themselves. Mm. Yeah. So it's, it's really about that strength-based perspective. And as a leader, to have a strength-based perspective, I think makes quite some, some, some difference. So... I, I had this one training um, with leaders and I was invited for, I think it was three hours, two hours, quite short, like, could you please give us something about MI and leadership? And they had MI as an approach for their staff and they were curious about what, what does this have to do with us as, as leaders? And, and given the short amount of time that I had on my hand, I was really sort of struggling with what do I do with those like two hours. Um, and what I decided upon was to do a workshop around affirmations. This skill of strength-based approach. And after I did that training, this has must have been six months after or something like that, one of the leaders come up to me and say, oh man, Frederick, you've done my job difficult. But she had a smile on her face when she said it. So I thought, well, this is probably not too bad. And she told me this story about how she wanted to be an appreciative leader, how she wanted her staff to feel appreciated by her. And what she did was, she, she used to say, good work, everyone, she said. She then said that all the time. And, and, and she told me, usually I ended my emails with, great job, great work, exclamation mark. And it didn't work, she said. I mean, it didn't work. 
And what you taught us was that I needed to be specific. If I think someone has done a good job, I need to tell them why I think that. What specifically have they done that I think was a good job? And then I realized I didn't know that. It was just something I said. So then I had to go out and, and, and spend time with my employees to have something to go on. And when I did that, I couldn't say it that often, but when I did say it and I was specific, something happened. So in some ways, that when you make a genuine affirmation, it's evidence that you've been paying attention to the other person and mm -hmm. they notice that. Exactly, exactly. So that's sort of one example of a skill that I have in MI that's really helpful for leaders that they sort of have the attitude of wanting to be appreciated and strength-based. And then how that translates to the notion of psychological safety, I imagine, is the that the person who receives that affirmation has this experience that the other is trying to understand them, tries to see their strengths, tries to see mm. the good in them, and the, the, that the other person values them, and then that creates a safer environment, both psychologically and, and throughout the workplace. Exactly. As, as, as often is the case, we find ourselves at a juncture in our podcast where undoubtedly we could continue to explore this really interesting uh, topic of, of motivation in the context of leaderships and organizations. But alas, we now have to begin to think of, of, of our time. And what we normally do at, at this point, uh, Frederick, is just invite our, our participants and our guests to think about, you know, is there anything that's going on for you at the minute or around you in the world that that's particularly caught your attention or curiosity. That's not necessarily motivational interviewing. It might be, but it doesn't have to be that, you know, you just, you just want to share with us and, and the audience. Well, uh, uh, it is around this sort of same topic that, that we've been um, on about. I've been getting a um, contract for, um, for leadership training uh, where they actually invited me to do four days, four full days, for their leaders, which which usually I did, didn't get, I, I, I got shorter um, contracts for leadership training, and it's a, it's a two day back to back, and then three months of follow up, and then three months another follow up, and I've collaborated with a friend of mine who's a, who's a researcher at the at the university here in the south of Sweden, and we are going to try to do some research. On, uh, on how it will influence the workplace when we do the, the training. So that's something that I'm really, really excited about. So a before and after. And what Precisely. You, I wonder which aspects of the organization are you particularly interested in measuring? Mm. So what you want to try to, to um, look at is engagement. Mm. How engaged are the members of the workforce? Force for their work and their workplace. And um, how meaningful is their work? What's the quality, the experienced quality of leadership? And what's the social support of their leaders? Um, uh, psychological safety is something that you want to look at. So it's it's uh, variables like that mm. that you want to see if those increase or decrease uh, during this period of time. I suppose from an organizational perspective. Um I guess that the organization is going to want to know is if we make this place psychologically safe for all these people, do they become more productive? Because from an organization perspective, that's what they're interested of the bottom line. Yeah. And, and there, there's a quite a large body of research sort of out of the MI world mm. that, that, that points to that psychological safety is, is one of the key factors. And it's a, it's a researcher, it's called Amy Edmonds. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the sort of big name around psychological safety. She, she rose to a bit of fame because of a um, New York Times article around a project that she did for Google mm -hmm. called Project Aristoteles. So if you're interested in, in psychological safety, and, and um, that's people to, to look up. Amy Edmonds, the New York Times article, and the Project Aristoteles that Google had going. They tried to, to um, see what the factors of of effective teams were. And it showed that the overall most important factor for efficient teams that sort of is, uh, is the backbone for everything else is psychological safety. 
Fantastic. We will uh, look for that and, and maybe put a link to that on uh, on the page as well. Nice. Great. Frederick, so um, we also ask if our guests are willing to have the audience uh, contact them directly with any questions or, or feedback, um, mm -hmm. if they'd be willing to do so. So uh, are you willing? And if so, how can they reach you? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So my email is, is Frederick, that's F-R-E-D-R-I-K, and there's an underlining, and my last name is Eliasson, that's E-L-I-A-S-S-O-N, and there's at iCloud.com. And you also mentioned the mailer website, am I correct? Do you want to reference that? So it's, it's uh, as one world, Am I in leadership and organizations? Am I in leadership and organizations? As one word. Yes. Or you could Google Milo, am I in leadership, and it will pop up. Right. And is that .com or .org? Or... Uh, that's .com. .com. And again, as Deb mentioned, what we'll do is we'll put those links in the, the actual uh, podcast blurb for people to access to. Yep. Fantastic. And and. Perhaps you just want to, as we finish up here, uh, again, just to remind people, if you want to have something to say about this episode or any other episode, uh, or to uh, contact us in relation to what Frederick has talked about, you can do that on Twitter, at Change Talking. On Facebook, it's Talking to Change. Emails, it's podcast at glennhines.com. All right, excellent. Well, Frederick, thanks so much. This has been a fascinating discussion and look forward to seeing your work as it unfolds. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a true pleasure. Thanks, Frederick. Thanks, Seb. See you soon. All right. Take thank care. you, Glenn. All right. Bye. 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 Bye guys. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.